Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. I would have laid my body across the road before I would have let the vice president overturn the 2020 election. On Wednesday night, I got a text from Michael Ludig. He was in Washington, and he wanted to get a drink. It was the night before his testimony in front of the January 6th committee. So I immediately called an Uber and made my way to the Hay Adams Hotel where he was staying. Ludig and his wife had just finished taking a walk around the White House, which is across the street. He's usually quick to joke, but he was in a serious and contemplative mood. He drank water. I had a Manhattan. I could tell that the gravity of the hearing was weighing on him. Back in February, Ludig came on this podcast and told, for the first time, the full story of his role advising Vice President Mike Pence. So he was an obvious guest for the committee on a day when it was focused on the pressure campaign to get Pence to reject slates of electoral votes on January 6th. But that's not really what was on his mind anymore. He told me that he hadn't come to Washington to testify about the facts of his role that day. Listening to him talk about what the committee wanted from him and what he intended to do, I realized that Ludig planned to go rogue. This is Playbook Deep Dive. I'm Ryan Lizza. What Ludig really wanted to do was shake the American people by the collar and warn them about the ongoing threat to democracy, not the plot that he had helped thwart back on January 6th, 2021. He's been around Washington a long time. He knew that members of Congress get to ask the questions, but witnesses get to say whatever they want in response. Ultimately, the committee did something unusual in the hearing to accommodate Ludic's wish. Judge Ludic. At the very end, Chairman Benny Thompson turned to Ludic and gave him. I want to give you an opportunity to share your thoughts. An opportunity to deliver his warning. On the ongoing threat. Watching Ludig's testimony on Thursday, I kept thinking back to our four-hour conversation earlier this year. Because at the hearing, Ludig was confounding to a lot of viewers, judging by the reaction on social media. He spoke very slowly, which can come across as weird on TV, but makes more sense if, like Ludig, Today, you were speaking for history. Almost two years after. And didn't want to get. That fateful day. A single. In January. Word. 2021. Wrong. As one journalist on Twitter wrote, I like how this guy treats every line of his testimony like he's engraving it on a national monument. So today, we're diving back into the archive and bringing you a sort of director's cut about who Ludig is and where he came from, which I hope will help you understand why he said this. Donald Trump and his allies and supporters... 
are a clear and present danger to American democracy. Ludig spoke to me from his home in South Carolina. I'm trying to find the sort of uh, the signposts on the way to your current views about uh, your fears about 2024 and Trump. What were the the really alarming moments of the Trump administration um, that got you to the point you're at now? Well, as my whole life uh, has been, the alarms, you know, fall into into the twin camps of politics and law. Okay, during the campaign of 2016, I was deeply, deeply troubled for the country if uh, uh, Mr. Trump was was elected. And then when he got into office, you know, I, I watched <laughs> all of this unfold moment to moment often involving close friends of mine and very often uh, involving issues that I had thought about my whole life and had a clear principled view about. (laughs) And then just the the conduct uh, uh, of the office, you know, was was offensive to me as it was to, to so many. Just to back up, was your, what's, what was your view of, of, of Bill Barr's legal analysis um, that he presented in 2018 to the, to the Trump administration about the, the special counsel, his criticism that, um, that, this, that Mueller had sort of exceeded his authority? Okay. I thought you were asking me about his statement with Rod Rosenstein prior to the release of the redacted Mueller report. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that, too, because that was a big one. That was a big one. That was arguably the turning point for Bill Barr, and which, which is why I, I want to answer yep. that. Let's start with that. Yeah, I was asked by many media organizations uh, to, to uh, give my opinion on that statement because there was a hue and cry that he had mis- misled the country and Congress and everybody misrepresented the Mueller report. And, you know, and, and I would say to your listeners that it's inconceivable to me how anyone could have better uh, stated, characterize, and summarize the Mueller report at that point than the way in which he did it. Remember, the public was clamoring to get the report, but it was going to take, you know, a week or two uh, to redact out classified information. So, you know, Bill didn't even have to do this, but he thought because the country was demanding it that he should should do it. And it, it could not have been any more pinpoint perfect than what it was as a summary, a high-level summary of that which was of the greatest interest to America at that moment, which was really only that Bob Mueller had declined to prosecute the President of the United States for obstruction and, and for you know all the, the other offenses. What Bill was criticized for was for not including 
all of the evidence in the thousand-page report which suggested a basis for prosecuting the president. Well, yeah, that's not what he's, he couldn't, it would not have been possible to do. Fair enough, yeah. Yeah, back, backing up into the 2018, the memo, because uh, Bill suddenly emerges on the scene almost out of nowhere. This uh, attorney general from the 90s <laughs> is suddenly the new attorney general for, for Trump. And then we all learn that there was this, you know, this memo that um, that uh, criticized the, the special counsel and uh, uh, what he was doing and whether he was uh, going beyond uh, his authority and that that was really something that spoke to uh, President Trump. Um, did you share that legal analysis w- with Bill? Did you share the, the view he had of the, of, of the special counsel? Well, I didn't... I, I, during our discussions, I didn't have his memo, right? But I, I, I will say this: one of my favorite lines uh, in in, a, in American political history was when Congress asked him, Senate asked Bill about that memo. You know, and they were sort of incredulous. You know, like Mr. Barr, what did you do this? And and Bill goes. Yes. And they said, by yourself? And he said, yes. And they said, like the footnotes and the research? Did did you do that by yourself? He said, yes. And they said, well, why why on earth, what, what possessed you to send this to the Department of Justice? And Bill said, in perfect character, perfect character. I wanted them to have the benefit of my views. <laughs> I love that line, but that's Bill Barr. Okay, so when everyone said, you know, said, well, you know, you know, he was uh, uh, campaigning for the job. No, that's just Bill Barr to the core. There's one um, thing I wanted to ask you about. I know one of your former clerks was the CIA general counsel. And I don't think it's well known that she was a former clerk of yours, but I, I just happened to come across it, Courtney Simmons Elwood. And I, don't think, I also don't think it's well known that she actually, as general counsel of the CIA, uh, NBC reported in 2019, made what she considered to be a criminal referral to the Justice Department about the same famous conversation between uh, Trump and the president uh, of Ukraine and whether you know he, he abused his office by pressuring the Ukrainian president to come up with dirt uh, on, on Biden. Um, did you have any visibility into uh, that part of the of the Ukraine uh, saga just by nature of your relationship with with Courtney? <laughs> well, now I'm beginning to regret the research that you did do. <laughs> Um, I know that's a kind of out of left field question, but I just, I was just looking at, you know, that's why I was asking you before about the, the, you know, you know, everyone (laughs) and your, your, your clerks are everywhere. That's my point. It's not an an out of left field question and you know it. Um, (laughs) uh, you know, Courtney was a a clerk of mine and she, she was the the CIA, uh, general counsel at, at the time. But I also had a, a number of other clerks, uh, you know, a- almost incredibly involved even in that matter. And I think that that was reported publicly 
to, to uh, as well, to include her and John Eisenberg, and then, of course, Bill. But I think John Demers might have been there in national security uh, at the time. So, yes, I, I, had, vis- I had visibility in, in, into that. Um, I want to want to talk about your views on the second Trump impeachment, but just and I, I really don't have much research on this, so I, I, this is really off the top of my head. The first uh, impeachment, which you know my previous question sort of gets at, were you um, any? Did you have any role in, in that? Were you advising any of the players in the in, in the in Trump's uh, first impeachment on any of the important legal issues that uh, that came up? I don't recall that I, I did, uh, Ryan, and I'm not uh, being coy. I, I, I don't recall. Uh, for these past two years of, quote, retirement uh, or, or, or three, you know, I, I have returned to Washington, in effect, advising and consulting with many, many of the players on, on many of the big issues, frankly, most of which are publicly known. But I don't it's remember a, that, advising yeah. on on that. And, and, and frankly, you know, between you and me, you know, I've been consulting with uh, friends in the media who were covering these events. So let's just sort of the, the three big ones that you've been a, a player on. I want to I want to uh, just sort of finish up with these three is the, the, the second impeachment. Um, what what were what was your role in terms of advising um, Republicans who sought your counsel about how, about the, the, especially in the Senate, about how to impro- uh, approach um, uh, uh, the, whether to uh, uh, vote to convict or not? Yes. Uh, that I was intimately involved in, uh, as you know. And as a practical matter, it probably began with the, the op-ed that I wrote in the Washington Post and, 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 and by the way, I feel the want to say this, I think because I'm talking with you, who, you know, you're a political person. To my knowledge, in 40 plus years, I have never written a single word uh, of politics, okay? Not one single word. And of all these, uh, I think I've done a dozen or more op-eds in the past uh, couple of years on big issues of the day, every single one of them was, to me, a legal issue, a large constitutional issue, with the single exception, now that I think of it, I I wrote a a passionate piece for Newsweek uh, about the need to uh, mask and quarantine to protect ourselves and our family. That was not that was not legal, but I, I I wrote that because my wife wanted me to, and uh, I don't regret it. It's just the only the only thing I even remember in forty years that was not legal. So turning to the to the Washington Post piece, so uh, I analyzed uh, the uh, impeachment clauses of the Constitution and concluded and wrote that uh, at a broad level for the listeners that. That the, that the impeachment clauses contemplate impeachment and removal from office of, of an incumbent president. The issue was uh, that, uh, not when I wrote it, but, but eventually, and, and I wrote it in anticipation of the eventuality 
that the House would have impeached the, uh, Trump before he left office, but the uh, Senate would not have, have convicted him by then. Yeah, just because of the timing. Because of the timing. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I put that, that op-ed in a day or two after Schumer or the Senate leader for someone said that they're not going to have time to, you know, try Trump in the Senate. And, yeah. you know, and so I just read that and I went, oh, this is, is a big constitutional issue and, and wrote the op-ed. I'm so much more interested in the law than, than, than the politics of it. Your question really was, uh, was I advising people? Uh, yes, I, I was advising a number of the uh, leading Republican senators. Do you think you had an impact on, on them? I, I, I think that my op-ed did, uh, certainly. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about any of the specific senators who you think uh, you had fruitful conversations with about those legal issues? No, I, I, I wouldn't want to do that. It, you know, the, these were, uh, most of them were, were, were longtime friends and still friends. And I, and I, I learned uh, from Fred Fielding, never, ever to talk. <laughs> but I think what's so interesting about this is, um, and you don't have to take credit for this, but I, I, I'll give you, you credit. And I think it's, well, it's, I think it's pretty well known that your argument, which I think it doesn't sound like you're a big fan of Donald Trump. So, <laughs> um, your argument seems to have been on the legal merits about, uh, that, that second Im impeachment. And you're, probably one of the, the the people that had the most impact on Republican senators uh, having a, a sort of sound legal case for not voting to convict when they might have otherwise. I'm sure you realize that. And I, I think it probably gives you um, a good deal of credibility for what you're saying more recently with, with respect to concerns about Trump in, in 2024. Ed Kilgore, a liberal in, the, in New York Magazine, wrote on Monday after your New York Times op-ed, he said, lovers of democracy already owe a debt of gratitude to conservative legal luminary Michael Ludig. The more we learn about the events of January 6, 2021, the more it appears Ludig was the decisive source of advice for then-President Mike Pence that convinced him to reject Donald Trump's pleas that he overturned the 2020 election results. Tell us about January 6th and, and Pence and um, your advice uh, to the vice president. Uh, I, I saw Ed's piece and tried to contact him, but could never find an, an email. Uh, but, but I appreciated what he wrote. So I was first called by uh, the vice president's counts, outside counsel, Richard Cullen, on the, the evening of January 4th. Um, and uh, um, we now know that that was after the uh, fateful Oval Office meeting that day between the president and vice president, where John Eastman made the argument that the vice president could overturn the election, you know, unilaterally, let, let's say, uh, as presiding officer. And you know John Eastman. John Easton was, was one of my clerks over 25 years ago. And, and Richard Cullen uh, is, is one of my closest friends in all of life. And, and we had been at that point talking 
seemingly every day, if not multiple times a day, throughout the entire Trump administration, because, of course, our, our close friend Bill Barr was attorney general, and then the vice president was intimately involved in all, all of this. But, but that's really just by way of saying that, you know, uh, so he called me and I was having dinner and, and I was in Colorado at the time. So he called the, the night of the fourth and says, uh, uh, he calls me judge, you know, you know, even though you don't. <laughs> well, I thought that you would understand, but you didn't. So uh, Richard calls and he says, uh, hey, judge, uh, so what do, you, what do you know about John Eastman? And I said, he was a clerk of mine 30 years ago. And he says, well, wh what else? What, do you, what else do you know? And I said, I don't know. I said, you know, John's a, an academic. He's a professor. Uh, he's a constitutional scholar. And he's a brilliant constitutional scholar. I said, why are, why are you asking? Wow, this is this is sort of sh I think this is sort of shocking to hear you say this, considering what the way that most people have been introduced to John Eastman. Yeah, well, I mean, read everything uh, that was written about him before, <laughs> you know, January sixth. So that that's that's interesting. The person who was the architect of the attempted coup, essentially, if I, I think uh, it's fair to use that language, was actually a well-respected legal mind. Um, with sound uh, views of the Constitution and uh, and uh, and and not like a, a um, you know like a the my the my pillow guy not some legal quack is, is is what you're saying. No, that's correct. Farthest thing from it. I've never liked politics and uh, and and I certainly don't respect it. Although I've worked in, in the political milieu my whole life. All right, all right. I have about a dozen questions to unpack the 70s, 80s, and early 90s here. So Roberts, Bill Barr, Scalia, you graduated in a very important era for the conservative movement um, and the sort of judicial wing of, of the conservative movement. And I'm just wondering if you can sort of like sort of give listeners a little bit of a sense of that moment in time when Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980. The conservative movement was sort of on the rise, and there were a lot of young lawyers like yourself coming out of uh, colleges and very excited to work in, in the Reagan administration. And a lot of people who are your age, you've known for all those years and are still um, well-known figures, whether it's, you know, Bill Barr, who was Trump's uh, attorney general, or uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who we'll get to this later, you, uh, you know, was uh, um, your rival for the, for the Supreme Court in the Bush administration. But just give us a little bit of a sense of the intellectual ferment of the Reagan revolution when you were interested in becoming a, a judge. Those were great days, <laughs> For, for, for uh, conservatives and, and conservative lawyers and jurists, for sure. It was political euphoria, of course. The mastermind of the legal uh, slash judicial conservative movement was Ed Meese, hmm. who was then first counselor to Reagan and then subsequently attorney general of the United States. But in any event, I stayed at the uh, White House uh, Reagan White House for a couple of years. All I ever wanted to do was be a lawyer and a judge. And uh, and sure enough, that opportunity came along because President Reagan nominated 
then Judge uh, Antonin Scalia to the to the D.C. Circuit. I saw that as my opportunity. Scalia picked me up, and uh, and I clerked for Scalia in 1981, 82. I returned to the Supreme Court as a law clerk to still Chief Justice Warren Burger uh, for the next year, and either one or two years thereafter, because the Chief Justice asked me to stay uh, and be what what was then uh, termed the special assistant to the Chief Justice. After that, I, I went immediately into uh, practice at Davis Polk and Wardwell uh, in their Washington office for about uh, five years. Uh, and then there, there, there came a day when uh, Bill Barr called me. Uh, Bill and I were longtime friends. And uh, he said, uh, hey, buddy, I just got a call from um, President Bush. And he wants me to come uh, head the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice. And I chuckled and we laughed. And, and, uh, and I said, that's terrific, Bill. Uh, we had been the, the two under consideration, and we knew that. And he said, uh, well, not so fast. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, I told the president I wouldn't do it unless you came with me. Uh, and, and, and we laughed, and I said, uh, uh, well, thanks, uh, thanks, pal, but uh, I need to stay here and make partner, and, uh, and maybe I'll join you later. And he said, no, no, I, I'm serious. Uh, not about the president saying that, but, or, or Bill saying that to the president, but I'm serious. Why don't you come, come with me? And I ended up doing that, Ryan. And a year later, Bill was uh, elevated to be deputy attorney general of the United States, the president nominated me to be assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel, which was the only other dream that I had ever had in life, that and to be a federal judge, because, uh, you know, my heroes had headed that office in the past years, including Bill Rehnquist and Nino Scalia. So uh, uh, I became assistant attorney general and counselor to then attorney general uh, Dick Thornburg. Uh, and, uh, you know, in those capacities, I, I sat on the Judicial Selection Committee. One day, uh, the Attorney General called called me and said, uh, Mike. Uh, this is Thornburg, right? This is before Bill Barr. Yeah, 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 Thornburg. This is, you're 36 at this time, right? Yes, exactly. 37 when you were confirmed? That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, I went up to uh, Scalia, of course, right away. Uh, at the Supreme Court and, 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 and to tell him about this. So he listened attentively. And, uh, and uh, when I was finished, he said, uh, well, look, this is just wonderful. Uh, I'm so proud of you. And of course, you, you, you have, have to do it. This is your life. You have to do it. And he said, but you'll never be confirmed. <laughs> because you're too young. He says, but, but, but wait, it's okay. He says, they will say wonderful things about you and say you're the, the greatest thing since sliced bread, but you're just too young. So you'll get rejected, but you'll be renominated, you know, in five or 10 more years. And then you'll become a circuit judge. Well, you know, you know Scalia, the wit and the humor, and he and I were very close friends. And 
you know, and, and we laughed and chuckled, uh, but he was serious, you know. And uh, so then fast forward for another vignette. Uh, so uh, I go up to meet Strom Thurmond, who was then the, uh, the uh, majority leader, uh, I, I believe. Uh, no, he may have been the minority leader. He's a Republican senator from South Carolina. And uh, um, I walked in with, with whoever uh, took me up there to introduce me to the senator. And we shook hands. And, and, and at the time, uh, I was considered the, the, the fair-haired boy from the administration. Uh, no one objected to me, but uh, they were going to extract from the administration every, everything they possibly could in return for my, my uh, appointment. So a lot of the Democratic senators, including Senator Moynihan, slapped uh, holds on my nomination, and the, and the negotiations began. Well, eventually, uh, Thornburg called me down to the office and, and said, uh, Mike, I want you to, to, to be on this call. I'm calling Senator Moynihan. Of course, I didn't hear the other end, but I, uh, Thornburg told me. Uh, the Senator Moynihan said, Dick, we don't have any problem with Mike Ludig, but uh, I'd like two district court seats uh, in exchange for Ludig. And uh, then I heard Dick Thornburg say, well, Pat, I'll give you one district court seat and I'll leave open uh, the other as a possibility for you if you'll let uh, Mike Ludig go through tonight. Well, Moynihan called back in five minutes and said, Dick, you got a deal. Uh, and, uh, and that night I was confirmed unanimously by, by the, the U.S. Senate and, and, uh, and, and, and went to the Fourth Circuit. Did that um, make you appreciate uh, politics more or less watching uh, the sausage of the confirmation process up close like that? Oh, I, I, man, I thought politics was the greatest thing in the world that night. <laughs> all right all right so you so so basically through the the, the 80s and through 91 you're doing the stations of the cross of a uh someone who's on his way to a uh, a federal judgeship the white house counsel's office um high profile clerkships with scalia and a supreme court clerkship uh with warren Berger. And then the Justice Department, where you're head of Office of Legal Counsel, which um, a lot of very famous uh, uh, legal minds have, uh, have, have gone through that office. Tell us a little bit about that period in 89 to 91 when you're in the Bush administration and the brief period when Bill Barr is attorney general. And I, I want to ask you about Barr because, of course, as we move forward in history, he returns to the, the, the Washington scene and becomes quite an important uh, person in the Trump administration. Just curious about what you remember about Barr and your, and your relationship with him back in the, in the Bush years before you head to uh, your, your federal judgeship. Well, uh, Bill and I were joined at the hip um, uh, during those years, uh, and we've remained uh, very, very close friends ever since. Bill and Boyd and I, and I combined on many, if not, if not all, of the legal issues that came out of the Bush White House, including, most importantly, 
both the nomination of David Souter and Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court. Uh, so that was my I, next question. Yeah, yeah good. I was head of the Office of Legal Counsel. So I was actually charged with the responsibility for analyzing the records of the potential candidates, documenting them, writing them up, and making my own recommendation to the Attorney General and, of course, to Boyden, uh, together with Bill. Um, let's fast forward a little bit to your... So, so um, after all of these sort of judicial... The, the judicial wars of the of the early '90s and the and, and your experience in the White House and the Justice Department, you are uh, the youngest judge on a federal appeals court at the time, uh, uh, starting in '91. Um, you know, two things jumped out at me in just sort of looking at some some of the history. One, um, well, let's we'll start with one thing. Just from a sort of process point of view, your um, judgeship became known for uh, the number of clerks who went on to to clerk at, at the Supreme Court. Do you have that right? Yes, that, that's that's right. I had the honor and the privilege, Ryan. Litigate. I've, I've heard they were called. There was a phrase for this or a word for this. The the, the litigators. So how, how do you pronounce it? Just like my name, litigators. You you got it and you know it. Okay. Uh, but no, it was it was uh, one of the greatest honors of my life to 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 be able to hire the best and brightest from the law schools each year. They all either uh, clerked on the Supreme Court after they they clerked for me, or they got offers to clerk and 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 turned them down. But what seems important about this is that dozens, maybe maybe more, of bright law students who clerked for you. Uh, have gone on to populate uh, the judiciary and the um, government, uh, I, I presume, of you know generally re- Republican I- administrations. There's just a sort of vast uh, network out there of your your former clerks in these important positions. Yes, I I love every one of them, and, and I love the fact that they have uh, gone on to uh, what I say to them. Run, run the world. Did you? So, a couple of questions about uh, being a judge, a, a well-known judge, someone you know, with with all of these connections in the conservative uh, legal world, and obviously someone who, um, like all federal judges, wants to be a Supreme Court justice. How do the political considerations of the Process by which a judge rises to the Supreme Court. How did that? How does that? How did that affect you um, all those years on uh, the bench? How do you separate the ambitions of wanting to take that next step up from the um, responsibilities you have as a judge? I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the sort of complicated politics of of being a, a judge. Yeah, I've never I've never discussed this with anyone um Ryan uh, much less publicly, but but of course I've thought about it for many many years. During the time that I was on the bench, I regarded myself as as being there because of people like uh Warren Burger, Nino Scalia, Ed Meese, Ronald Reagan and, and George Bush, and 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 I could go on and on, uh, and 
those people, they were looking over my shoulder for the entire time I was a judge, not to reach any kind of result, any particular result ever, just the opposite, but to say what I believe the law was without regard to politics or policy uh, or, or any other uh, factor uh, external to the law. So that, you know, uh, you know, I signed many opinions that, that I knew were going to split the country and that I would be roundly criticized for the next day and oftentimes before I got home that night. <laughs> Off the top of your head, what's one that falls into that category? Well, I, I, I authored uh, several very significant uh, abortion cases at, at, at the time, uh, Ryan. Yep. Every time I would just say to myself, okay, look, <laughs> this is going to be bad, <laughs> you know, but I, I, I have no choice. You know, I, I, I've always thought that uh, the, a judicial position is a sacred position. Uh, I think of it differently than I, I think many, many judges, certainly many judges today, uh, I, I think it's sacrosanct and in, 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 in particular in the way that, that you must be uh, absolutely impervious to politics or policy and partisans and uh, write what you believe is the law without regard to any of that. And, and I, I believe I did that uh, in every word I wrote while on the Court of Appeals. And that's our show. This episode was produced by Kara Tabor, Brooke Hayes, and Afra Abdullah. Adam Ellington is our senior producer. Jenny Ament is Politico's executive producer of audio. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening. <laughs>